All right. We are here today with Imran Khan. He is the CEO and co-founder of Verishop. Very excited to have you here today. I would love for you to start by introducing yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Great. Thanks, Joma. I appreciate it. So I'm the founder and CEO of Verishop. Been in tech for over two decades. First decade of my career, I was a research analyst, mostly at JP Morgan, covering internet. And very, very early days of internet. Like I worked on Google IPO in 2004 as a research analyst. Then in 2010, I left research to go to banking at Credit Suisse, where I ran internet investment banking for Credit Suisse and did a lot of global deals. So I took Alibaba Public and also helped them buy back share from Yahoo. At that time, Yahoo owned 40% of Alibaba share. Then in 2014, I got a call from Snapchat and I joined Snap when Snap was still relatively early in terms of company's evolution. I ran all revenue partnership m and HR real estate for four years. Company went public and then at the end of 2018, I left to start Vershop. What Vershop is, what we're trying to build is we're trying to build a community platform for independent brand creators. You know, one of the theses that I have is that internet democratized the creators and we saw pretty incredible growth of digital content creators. And I think the next leg of growth will come from people who are building product, physical product creators. And we wanted to build a dedicated platform that supports those independent brand creators. And what Vershop does, we help those independent brand creators grow by selling on our owned and operated properties like Vershop.com or through our marketing solution, like where we have exclusive partnership partners like NBC and also help them save cost by enabling their business through reducing cost for their software services or their 3PL or their FedEx. We do collective bargaining on behalf of them so that you know, our community now has around 5,000 brands. So that's a little bit about version. As far as your career trajectory, you've worked in finance, you've worked as an executive at Snapchat, you've been in big tech, and now you're the founder and CEO of a startup. What have you learned about yourself in these different roles and which one do you enjoy the most? The great question. I enjoyed all of the jobs when I had them. I really enjoyed them. You know, a little bit of my background, I grew up in Bangladesh, came here to college, and I, I went to school in Colorado. So I was incredibly blessed to go to Wall Street in 1999 and worked in Telecom Group, which was at that time insane. So I really had a great time as a research analyst, as a banker, as a snap, and now as a founder. I think each of the jobs required different kind of skill set, and each of the jobs really stretched me to discover myself. And honestly, first year was really tough for each of the businesses. But I know after that, that gets easier as you get into the rhythm. And I like to torture myself and try new things. So here I am. Did your background in finance and then at Snapchat, did that help you become a better startup founder? Or are there ways in which it might have ingrained certain habits or ways of thinking that you might have had to reprogram? So how have they affected you as a startup founder, basically? It has some blessings. And it has some cars. I think being a founder of a startup is very different than working in Wall Street because in a way you work in a very large companies, firms like JP Morgan, we survived a global financial crisis and very different environment, very different skill set that requires you to succeed. When I went to Snap, you know, Snap was still a relatively startup, but you know, we did, we had zero revenue but we had 70 million users. So there's no product market fit issue. And I also had a great partner like Evan, who's my boss and partner and a great friend. He's incredible at product. So I never had to worry about product part of the business, right? It was done super well. So all I have to worry about monetization and scaling. When you start a business, you have a thesis that what you want to build, but there's always holes in your thesis. So you, you have to constantly evolve. And by the way, 
you have to evolve even if you're in a big company. You know, look how many times Facebook evolved or how many times Netflix evolved. I think there is some huge stigma that, oh, if you evolve, it's somewhat bad thing. But the reality is if you don't evolve, you will not survive because the world around you evolves. But the challenge is that when you're a startup founder, you have very limited resources. So if you get one or two evolved wrong, you go out of business. So your constraint is much higher. At Snap, once you have a 70 million users, you can make one or two evolve that doesn't work out and then you can fix it. Or if you work at JP Morgan, there's a lot of things can go wrong, but you'll be fine. I remember in 2007, I became managing director at JP Morgan. And that was an interesting year because that was the time when Bear Strand hedge fund went bankrupt. And Jamie Diamond said something really interesting that not one or two clients means anything to us in a sense, like it will not bankrupt JP Morgan. So what's most important thing is our risk management and our integrity and things like that. That can bankrupt us. But if we lose two business, no big deal. JP Morgan will be still be fine. But when you're a startup, you have very little room for making mistakes. So that's, I think, it's a completely new thing because I was not used to the environment of constraint. In a way, this recessionary environment, Bearshop became a much stronger company in the last 12 months because one, this is where my previous experience was helpful because I saw that it's coming. So we started taking the medicine a year ago. As a result, the business is much more healthier right now. But if I were much younger and a startup and didn't have access to capital the way I had, we would have been more scrappier and do better. So it has positive and negative. You know, I think one of the most interesting thing I now believe that a lot of companies die not because they don't have money, but because they have too much money. Because when you raise too much money, it creates a lot of distraction. Mm-hmm. You know, a constraint is a good thing. It's funny. In a smaller way, I've really observed that with direct-to-consumer brands because there was a wave a few years ago when a lot of these direct-to-consumer brands raised a lot of money. But there's sort of a sweet spot of how much you need to fund that business in the early days. And when you try to throw money at product market fit or some of these fundamentals that just require discipline and experimentation to figure out, I do think that you end up bloating the company and trying all these sort of wrong-headed things. So that's a really interesting observation based on your experiences as well. I'm curious about what you've learned about how companies can prepare themselves for a long-term exit opportunity because you were an analyst working on the Google IPO. You have helped to lead the Alibaba IPO. You were at Snapchat when they IPO'd. So these are some incredibly career-defining moments. So based on all of those learnings, for startups today that are able to weather the kind of turbulent times ahead and want to keep an eye on, okay, I want to make sure that we're building something great, but also if we want to pursue that exit opportunity a few years down the road, that we are being thoughtful. What can they do to take that into consideration from the beginning? I think raising a lot of money is a curse because the reality is if you look at in the U.S. public market, the U.S. is the largest capital market in the world, there's 1,800 companies that's worth above a billion dollar market, the entire U.S. capital market. So I think one of the biggest challenge is everybody wants the next company to be next Facebook and next Google and next Alibaba and next Snapchat. The reality is you have to be incredibly lucky to build a product like that. And not only lucky, you're also going to be in a period that luck helps you, right? If Alibaba starts today in China, it's going to be incredibly difficult to build the next Alibaba, right? Because Alibaba already exists and they built Alibaba in a time when internet was just first coming into China. People forget Jack's first company failed. So if you start early, you fail. If you start late, you're too late. So you have to be, first of all, you have to be great founders. The tenacity is so incredible. But all, with all of those things, if you talk to them, there is a little bit of luck involved. And they'll be the first one to admit that. So there's a lot of things has to go right to 
build an incredible business. And then listen, I made that mistake also. In hindsight, you know, we should have raised the money we raised because we would have been more focused. But the reality is when you raise a lot of money, when people give you money, they give you debt. First of all, you have to respect that when people are giving you money, they're giving you the trust. But the second part is it's effectively a debt. They call it equity, but it's effectively a debt because you have to pay them some sort of return. At least I view when people give me money, I'm indebted to them. The more money you raise, the harder you force to generate return. The key thing people need to really have to figure out, how can this business be profitable? And if they're going to burn cash, they have to be darn sure that this business could be really, really big. And I think a mistake that a lot of people make, investors make, and founders make because they're optimistic. And I always think, you know, everybody thinks their own kid is the most beautiful and <laughs> successful and most smart. That's fine. But I think a lot of investors make, joke I like to make, that when they're babies, cats and tiger look same but a cat never become a tiger. So you really have to think about what business you're really building and how big this business can be. And based on that, your exit strategy could be completely different. Right now, I'm a chairman of a company and the founder started the company with $5,000, never raised outside capital. He sold shares, but he never raised primary capital. And, you know, his business, over billion dollar sales, profitable business. So you really have to think about what's the sweet spot and where you're going after. There is no one definition of building a great business. A business could be $300 million, a business could be $50 million, generate profit, generate profit for 25 years. It's a great business. And a business could be $2 billion revenue, but losing $500 million a year, not so great business. I love that mindset. And, you know, it sounds straightforward when you put it in those terms. But I think it's surprisingly rare to have that mindset, especially from somebody who has had an illustrious career like you have had, who potentially could access a lot more capital. I think it takes an additional level of restraint and discipline to say, we're going to be heads down and build the right thing and raise the right amount of funding. And even then you're saying, I think we raised a little too much funding. I'd love to understand sort of like, you know, after you had your career in finance and after you were chief strategy officer at Snapchat and after all of your experiences, I think there could have been a career path for you to kind of coast, right? Kind of just maybe do a little venture investing, maybe some not do the grueling thing of starting a company from scratch and being in those trenches and having to navigate it with all these other founders. So what was it about the idea that felt like it was timely? What was it about that idea that drew you in particular? So take us back to that decision point. What inspired you to actually start Bearshop? Yeah, I think three things drove that decision making. One, I fundamentally believe in this creator economy. Anecdotal, if you look at the data point, right? If you look at the U.S. labor market participation, nobody can figure it out. Despite having high inflation, U.S. labor market participation is lower than it should be. It should be 64%. Now it's running at 62.9%. So my thesis is, is actually the creator economy because a lot of people are making enough money. They're like, why do I have to go to get back to a nine to five job? And they're coming out of the workforce because they're not looking for a job and labor market participation is not catching them. The second thing that's happening, I think this creator economy continues to grow. And I think the next evolution of creators that and I was observing at Snapchat is people who are building physical product. And a lot of people are building digital product too. And it takes a long time, right? If you look at it, it took 15, 16 years. I think we are in the year two or year three, or maybe year five. I don't know exactly what it is, but people building brands, physical product. Yeah, at the beginning year was the big venture funded all birds of the world. But now I think it will be less so venture funded, but people building great product with a great story. Because at the end of the day, what is a brand? A brand is a promise. And people are building product with a lot of interesting promise. They will find their audience. You know, they're not going to be the 
biggest business in the world. They will be a fine business. Probably they're going to be a profitable business. These businesses, they're small businesses. And somebody needs to support these small businesses. There's no community for them. So that's one. So I really believe in this creator economy. Second thing is, listen, I'm not the most altruistic person in the world. So I'm not going to claim here and see that that's not my personality. But I also wanted to say that, what can I do to support the world and do better things? Yeah to Google Public and Alibaba Public and so on. They're all great, but what can I do to intellectually stimulate me? But also I feel like I'm making positive change in the world. And I think supporting the small businesses is a great way to support the economy, support the society, because when people empower people, they create jobs, it empowers the society. So I think building a business that stands for people who are building great things and great product, I think that's a great cause. And then the third, throughout my career, called me crazy. I like challenges. I could have been research analyst all my life. A lot of people who still research analysts that I started with, a lot of people do banking for the rest of life. I like change. I like shake things up. And that's me. So I feel like you, you got to try. If you fail, you fail, but you got to try. Did you expect to be doing what you're doing now when you were a kid in Bangladesh? No, absolutely no. First of all, I didn't know what Wall Street was in Bangladesh. The only reason I got exposure to Wall Street because one of the person I was friend with, who's two years older than me, got an internship at Cowan. And I was like, well, this is a cool job. And then I took a class or two and I was like, well, this is interesting. That's how I got into it. And to be honest with you, by 2008 or nine, I was really bored with research. So I was trying to do something different. And it's really funny. I was talking to Joe Chai, who's the co-founder of Alibaba in 2010. And I was telling him that I'm really bored. I want to do something. Should I move to China? China is growing really fast at that time. He said, why don't you go become a banker? Because I think you'll be a great banker and I would love to work with you. So I was like, sure. And I didn't think about anything. And three days later, he called me and said, hey, can I give you a name to a couple of banks? I didn't realize how influential Joe was. I was like, you know, he's just an Alibaba guy. But I guess he was more influential than I thought. Every bank's called me. And that's how I ended up going to Credit Suisse to do banking. And then the snap thing, I wasn't really looking to leave. I was thinking about doing something else. But I was really thinking about going to maybe private equity or something like that. But, you know, I got a call and I never met Evan before and I went to meet him and I was blown away by his intellect, his thought. I remember we went for a long walk. After the walk, I went to his office and he left. I was like, if he gives me an offer, I'll take it. So I think, to be honest with you, studying this company is the most deliberate thing I've done since I got my first job because I deliberately wanted to go to Wall Street. But everything else, I was like, okay, I'm bored. I wanted to do something else. I didn't really have a huge expectation out of anything. See how it goes. Going back to the observations about the creator economy, and I'm sure you were exposed to sort of the front lines of that while you were at Snap as well. How do you see other markets for the creator economy evolving? I imagine that the creator economy in the U.S. is the most mature so far, but I could be wrong. Do you feel that the creator economy in China, as far as opportunities and sort of the popularity of that and the acceptance of it increasingly as a career path, do you feel like all of that has matured in an equivalent way in China? And what are some other markets where you think the creator economy is really taking hold the way that it is here? I cannot sit here and say with 100% confidence that U.S. is the best because China, you know, they call it KOL, key opinion leader, is being a very strong part of the Chinese ecosystem for a long period of time. So if you look at China's social commerce market, for example, Doyan, which is owned by TikTok parent company, ByteDance, has roughly 40% of commerce lead market share, and that's all the KOLs. If you look at Alibaba, roughly 10% of their GMB comes from KOLs. So I think it is a decent part, and whether it's bigger than U.S. or smaller than U.S., I don't know necessarily, but it, it's a big part of it. And, and I think one of the 
interesting thing that's happening because of TikTok. It's a really interesting thing that history keeps repeating itself. And I always say that it's the same things with a different flavor. If you go back 30 years ago, it was cable system. So you have the Comcast of the world and you have content, which is emptiness of the world. And there's always this cycle went to when sometimes cable system, the distributors are more powerful. Sometimes MTV became such a cultural icon, they became very powerful. So one way to think about these social networking companies is the next generation cable system. They are the distribution plan. Instead of 50 channels, now we have hundreds of thousands of channels. Right? These are the creators. But people who are creating great content, I think, becoming more and more valuable because people are looking for interesting content. And I think one of the reasons TikTok was so successful because they found a way to great creators and they found a way to amplify those creators. Because the follow model, follow-based model, had some had these challenges, right? Because people who had a lot of followers already had the huge competitive advantage. So it was very difficult for newer content creators to move up. TikTok actually democratized that, which is brilliant. And by doing so, they created a whole new generation of creators who are actually very, very good creators. So I actually think the power of content creators are going up. And I think you will see more and more these platform companies will have to pay up more to get these content creators on their platform. Otherwise, they will lose timeshare. Because mm -hmm. right now, you know, in the US at least, we hit the peak timeshare. If anything, timeshare is probably going down post-COVID. So if anything, great content creators are more valuable than ever. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that we're also going to start to see creators as a whole start to niche down more because I think people are recognizing that it's not just about reach. It's not just about the size of your audience. It's about the quality of engagement, the community yeah. that you build, the relationships that you have. Not to put this all on you and expect you to have an answer to this, but do you think that TikTok will potentially get banned in the United States. And I say this as a TikTok creator whose livelihood basically depends on TikTok. I don't think TikTok will be banned. Like, you know, I think if you look at about it, what problem we're trying to solve, the problem we're trying to solve is that users, we want to feel 100% confident that, that the U.S. consumer data is protected every possible way. That doesn't require banning an app. You can force them to carve out the business. I think some of the stuff already happened, right? Move the data centers and things like that. In my mind, TikTok will only get banned in the U.S. if TikTok cannot find a compromise with U.S. government. I feel like the ban for me is like a nuclear option that we cannot get comfortable that everything they're doing is going to save that U.S. consumer. And I think it feels like there's a lot of the variation we can do to get to that, assuming that we can build trust. And I also think it will require some support from PRC. They have to be a little bit more flexible what they will allow because TikTok is also have to follow what Chinese rule is. But look, listen, we had this deadlock with the accounting for these public Chinese companies and we came up to a solution. So I feel like ultimately we will get there. So banning to me, it feels like a nuclear option that everything failed and there are a lot of ways we can achieve the objective. And I imagine it sets a tricky precedent where it's such a gesture of maybe hostility in a way that maybe will affect perceptions, mass perceptions around the geopolitical tensions in an unfavorable way. I don't know. I, I have no idea really what's going on behind the scenes. Listen, I think it's the interesting thing is we, we're living in an interesting time. Think about it. In a way, we lived one of the most peaceful time in world's history. And the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990 when I was 13 years old. Till now, it was one of the most peaceful time in world's history. Yeah, we had 9-11 and things like that. But overall, you know, if you look at the history, people always fought. And we also lead to the globalization. Everything has unintended consequences. And this is where I think a lot of young people get it wrong. There's nothing is 100% pure. Everything has issues. And when you really believe in 100% purity, it backfires. Mm -hmm. Globalization is also not 100% pure. It has its downside. 
And I think in a way we are now seeing everything has an equal and opposite reaction, right? We pushed through globalization that has some unintended consequences. Now we're seeing some backlash. And I think we need to find a compromise. And if we can't, then it's a problem. I think so far, the US government has been very thoughtful about it. So I don't have any insight how it's going to play out, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot more other things we can do before we ban it. And I saw today that TikTok CEO is going to the Congress. So you're doing the right thing, going to the US Congress and things like that. So we'll see. Your point about this last 30-year period being such a stretch of peacetime in a way that actually is an anomaly when you zoom out and look at history. That's such an interesting one because I think that when we're in the midst of these clashes or the backlash to globalization or tensions with China between two you know, superpowers, I think we get so caught up in catastrophizing it. But it's really par for the course as far as civilization when you really zoom out. Right. It's like very normal and in a way, maybe even inevitable that this is happening. So yeah, I, I think that's a, an interesting point. Zooming out of just ByteDance and TikTok, what do you see being the prospects for the relations between tech in China and tech in the U.S.? China seems to be cracking down on tech companies in general, even domestically. And I imagine that the rising sort of geopolitical tensions are going to have implications for the relations between their tech ecosystems. What do you see happening now? And do you have any predictions for what might happen? I think any times an industry become big, it gets regulated. Tech is a big category. It's a big employer in the economy. It's a big part of the GDP. A large chunk of the S&P is now tech. And when the companies become big, they become very influential. Whether we like it or not, anybody gets influential. Really, I don't believe in regulations. I'm a very deregulated person in terms of personal philosophy. But saying that, we cannot have complete chaos either. There has to be some guidelines. So I, I think that regulation is not a bad thing. I think where we fail a lot of times, we create bad regulation. So I think good regulation is a good thing. It fosters competition, it drives growth and things like that. These are all good things. Sensible regulations, you need to welcome it. You know, I think the biggest mistake people make, they just double down and believe in these pure things. You know, there's nothing is pure. A lot of regulation is a terrible thing. Bad regulation is a terrible thing. No regulation is a terrible thing. So I think tech needs to have regulations, what they can and can do to protect the consumer, to protect their employees, to protect their advertisers or everybody who participate on the tech ecosystem. There needs to be regulations. They need to be protected. Without that, you know, if you realize left the tech companies to regulate themselves, a lot of the people who participate on the things will get hurt. And these are a lot of times they're small businesses, they're medium-sized businesses, they're competition. So we need to make sure that people who are participant on this ecosystem, because this company build platform, they build ecosystem, that they are protected. And that's why we need to have regulations. I think what needs to happen, this regulation needs to be smart. And I think this regulation needs to be built with a consensus basis. Some bunch of people sitting in Washington, D.C. who doesn't know anything about these businesses, creating laws, a terrible idea. And if we create right regulations, I think it will only going to help the industry grow more. So I'm not opposed to regulations, but I think the regulations need to be smart regulations. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely everything kind of lives in the nuance. And I think when people are too ideologically driven in any camp, they become absolutists. And that's simply yeah, nothing. Not, Absolutism is never a good solution. I think we need to understand that we live in a country which is a very, very big country with different people with a different, very different opinion. And we need to find somewhere that where everybody can live with it. It is a really fascinating and challenging experiment. Just the whole America experiment yeah. is difficult. And I think that Sometimes, for me at least, it's easy to get caught up in all the things that are going wrong with it. But when you consider the fact that it's inherently a difficult experiment, and I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that this country has undertaken it to begin with, it assuages some of those anxieties for me. Right. And people are very different, right? 
I lived in you know, New York, I lived in LA, I lived in Texas. It's a very different state with very different views and we cannot force people. Obviously, there's some moral standard that you have to follow, but then after that, there's a lot of nuances. I think understanding different point of view is very, very critical. And I think it's really important for the CEOs also, right? Because I think a lot of the companies facing the problem is that majority means there is a minority and you can get majority with 51% of the people. That means 49% of the people disagree with them. But even if you get majority with 70% of the people, that means a third of the people disagree with you. Mm -hmm. And suddenly if you start pushing down everything just for the 70% of the people and the 30% of the people completely disagree, after a while it can significantly backfire. So you really need to, to find the things that accommodate everybody, accommodate protect, and accommodate moral standing. And that's true for companies also. You have a company that 70% of the people might believe something, but 30% of the people don't believe something. And you really have to understand why they don't believe it. And is there a happy medium that everybody can be, you know, again, with some standard, there's always got to be some red lights, right? I think this is one of the big things. When you're a CEO, you don't govern or you're a president, you don't run for 51%. You run for 100%. When you're running a large company, you really have to understand that you're not doing because 60% or 70% of your employees like something, but the world is more complex and the customers you're serving, they're not all in LA or San Francisco or New York. They live all over the world. You have to understand this complex world and you have to serve everybody well. Do you feel like your background from Bangladesh and just being an immigrant in the United States has shaped your ability to see what's happening here from a different perspective? I think so. Like, you know, I remember a lot of my older friends grew up in a communist world. They have a very different point of view. Or if you talk to Cuban immigrants, they see the world very differently. And they have a very different perspective of a government. Yeah, I think growing up in different parts of the world and traveling a lot of the world gives you perspective. A lot of things we take granted and get upset about, a lot of people in the world don't have access to. Yeah, we have a lot of first world problems here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so to go back to Verishop, I'm curious about whether there are any major pivots you guys have made or anything that was surprising or unforeseen that you experienced as a startup since you were founded. You know, I think if you talk to our team, they will say pivot. I don't necessarily think that pivoting, they're more evolving. A lot of times, some of them were my lack of ability to communicate properly. But I think we obviously started as a just an e-commerce site. But from day one, let's put it this way, the mission statement of the company has never changed. Our mission was to help independent brand creators be more successful. That was the mission statement. And how we go about it, that changed quite a bit over time. So, you know, we now have marketing solution business we didn't have. So if you talk to somebody, they will call it a pivot. But to me, that is like, that was the mission. So to me, like the key thing, again, going back to, I'm flexible on everything as long as it doesn't compromise my value. My value is really, we created the company to support these small businesses, you know, this new generation of creators to be more successful and how we go about it, we evolved over times. And some people will call it pivot. I would call it evolution. So that's the way I would say. Who is the target customer? And have you been surprised by who has been most active as far as using your platform, shopping on your platform? So it's a really interesting question, right? So we have two kinds of customers, I think. But really our core customers, if you go back to the mission, is this independent brand creators. For them to be successful, we also need treat our shoppers as our customers. So we have two group of customers, our shoppers and our marketing ecosystem. Now on a shoppers fund, you know, 85% of our customers are female, age ranges between 25 to 40, average household income is $75,000 or more. Like we don't really have that many man customers. And then because of the products that we're really focused on beauty, home and apparel. So that's one big area. 
And on the merchant side, you know, we found success in clothing and home and beauty. We have merchants that are doing a million dollars and very successful on our platform. You know, another merchant doing $30 million is very successful and taking advantage of all of our products. It varies. You know, I think a lot of them also depend on our ability to educate and finding, matching the merchants with the shoppers and things like that. What are the criteria you implement to accept and vet different brands and how have they evolved? Yeah. So the interesting thing is that my basic principle is, again, what is the brand? A brand is a promise. So really what we look for, does this product has a promise and they're standing by their promise or do you want to build something? It's an artist who, who really believe in something and want to build it, a designer or a creator. So that's what, what I really ask the team to move away from our own judgment, because the reality is every creator, if they are creating with a promise, the promise may have an audience and we want to connect them with the audience. You know, we don't want to sit there and judge them. What we're trying to avoid is people are building product for the sake of product. And I think those products are probably better off being at Amazon or Wish or something like that. You're building commodity disposable utility product. That's not our platform. We want to connect the creators who has a promise to tell our brand. That hasn't changed. I think one of the interesting things, the way the business evolved though, when we first started the business, one of the challenges like to cold start, a shopper come to the platform and if they see a bunch of brands they never heard of, they will never want to shop on their shop. So at first we brought in some big established brand and we still have some big established brand on the platform. And that actually helps validate those smaller brands. You know, same thing at Snap we did, you know, we signed up all the big influencers that everybody know of, right? So I think you need to find this balance. So at the beginning, probably there was a higher focus on the big established brand. But now, now that the platform has, you know, people understand who we are, a lot of people still hasn't heard of us, but we have a decent community now that we can just focus more on these new brand creators. And I also imagine that some of those more established brands probably incentivize the other brands to join, right? Because it's a positive signal. And it's great for the big brands also, because by being with us, you bring brand also become a little bit cooler because now you're a full new brand. Going back to the way that you vet brands, you were saying that a brand is a promise, which I love. You look for brands with a story. You do have a more curated selection than maybe what people would find on other marketplaces and other aggregators. Is the process you use for vetting brands more qualitative? Is it more quantitative? Is it a mix of the two? What does that look like? Probably more qualitative than quantitative, you know, because like a brand might sell a lot of product. You might sell cheap headphones, can still make a lot of money, but it doesn't really have a promise. You know? And again, I think that's nothing against those products. Amazon or Wish is perfectly fine platform to find them. We don't need to recreate something that's already exists. Because I think one of the things for shoppers we wanted to create, how many times you on Instagram or TikTok, you find some cool brands and not at time has the intent of shopping. And number two, even if you purchase, you don't know who you purchase, what are the customer support? You know, the post-purchase experience is such an important part of it. If you have to return the product, when you return the product, like I heard this horrible story, I bought something from Instagram and shows up six months later and I try to return it, I have to return it in Australia, you know, things like that. So we wanted to create a platform that if you have a shopping intent, you know, Varshop is a perfectly alternative option to find these cool new 5,000 brands, probably a lot of them, you never heard of them and find them, learn about them and purchase them when you have an intent. Because a lot of the brands you bring on do have powerful stories and community and they are very distinct, they have a point of view. Because of that, I imagine showcasing that is important to you guys. How do you do that when there are so many different brands and when, you know, a brand could easily get lost in a sea of other brands? How do you balance offering that selection in an efficient way with really building features that allow brands to showcase their stories and what makes them special? Yeah, so I think one of the things we're trying to do, if you download our app, you will see we have content feed. So brands can upload all their content because 
content is a great way to discover something. It's not so much on the website, but on the app. We have live streaming or you don't have to create live streaming. You can create videos and upload the videos. So we brought in a lot of content and we're also creating a lot of editorials. And I think this is another area that we can do more because we have so many great stories. We can highlight the stories. So I think that's something we're doing more. And that also helped with our SEO and things like that to get traffic. We're focusing a lot on the editorial side. Also create tools for our brands can create editorial content. So for example, we have brand profile. So the way you can create profile on TikTok and Snapchat and Pinterest, you can use our brand profile to create profile and upload all your content and storytelling. So I think you're going to see us more and more doubling down on tools so that people can use those tools to create content and so that it's easier for brands. And, you know, I think 15, 20% of our traffic goes directly to these profile pages. So we're bringing decent traffic there, but obviously we need to scale. That's interesting because one thing I talk a lot about on my TikTok is the fact that the line between brands and creators and founders, for that matter, they're all being blurred. And creators are obviously creating brands. So we already see a lot of influencer-led brands and talent-led brands. But I think the other point that you're kind of alluding to is that brands are kind of like influencers today too. They have a distinct voice. They create content. They're almost like creators slash little media entities in and of themselves, because these days you just have to create a lot of content to build that community and engagement. So it's almost like Veroshop is the platform that's capitalizing on that intersection or that blurring of the line between creators and brands, if you will. Exactly. You know, and I think one of the interesting things is that I was recently talking to a creator who has her own brands. And she was like, you know, I have a lot of followers on social media, but if I post too much about my business, I get backlash. So Veroshop is a platform. It is a commercial platform. We're not, not going to have hundreds of millions of users like Facebook and Snapchat and Pinterest, but we are a commercial intent platform where you want to know the stories, right? Mm -hmm. Because more and more helper wants to know what they're buying. You know, if they want to buy a commodity disposable utility product, you can go to Google, you can go to Amazon and search it and you buy the lowest price point, right? But when you're paying for a a little higher price point, you want to understand what's the difference, why it costs more than a dollar, why it's different than Shane, right? Find the cheapest product, go to Shane. We're not going to compete with Shane, but you got to feel comfortable about their, you know, labor policy and environmental policy and things like that. If you're comfortable with it, go shop there. But if you're looking for that, hey, I want to buy something that I sleep well on the labor policy, on the environmental policy, and also I'm buying something that I'm going to wear more than once, Veroshop is a good place to come and check it out. Do you feel like there are other marketplaces or platforms that either have tried to do what you guys do, predecessors who tried and then failed, that were solely devoted to this, to tackling this problem? And if so, what do you think they got wrong? I don't think anybody failed, but, you know, I also think if you are coming up with an idea that nobody ever thought about it, it's probably a bad idea. Nobody has a monopoly on an idea. So there are players like Wolf and Badgers. I recently found a company in Asia called W Concept, Bubble Goods for Food all are really dedicated to independent brands. I think what we are doing differently is, I think the key thing is we are focusing more on community. We want to support these brand creators and helping them sell to a marketplace as to one part of it. Helping them in the long term. Tulma, you want to create a brand, you should be able to come find suppliers through Veroshop and sell on Veroshop if you want to and buy marketing solutions through our marketing solution services and get access to email marketing, your FedEx and UPPL, all of those things to us so that you don't have to individually call all these people and make deals, right? If I can do that, then more creators are going to create great product. It's going to democratize the platform. So I think the difference between us versus others, I think a lot of other people are seeing the opportunities of these independent brands and, and a lot of shoppers definitely want that. But we're saying, how can we be partner, help these brand creators sell more, get more distribution and save more. 
What have been the biggest challenges around product? The biggest challenge for product, you know, I think it, it's been very consistent. I think it's consistent for every tech company that I saw is this performance or lack of focus of performance. Because performance is such a boring topic. Most engineers don't want to focus on it. You know, I remember when I worked in Google IPO. So it's a really interesting story. In 2004, if you look at the financial statement, Google was spending billions of dollars in CapEx and Yahoo spending $50 million. All the analysts like me, they're like, wait a second, are you guys crazy? Why spending 20x more than Yahoo? And you have similar search market share. And I think it's Larry and then Jonathan, they, all these guys were trying to convince us that how millisecond speed makes a massive difference in search market share. So Google was, I think, first company I got exposed to that they were maniacally focused on this performance. And I remember Jack Ma told me when I was working on Alibaba that first three years of his life, all he did is test the product and said, if my grandma cannot shop here, this site doesn't work. So this huge focus on this performance. Early days of Snap, you know, we talked about it in an IPO roadshow that we had a problem with Android because the lack of focus on Android performance really hurt Snap early days growing our Android user base in emerging market. Once we really got dedicated focus on this performance improvement, we saw pretty significant growth. Now I think Snap has over 100 million users in India, right? So I think workshop, that was a problem, you know, getting the team focused on performance was a real challenge. How can you improve the site speed? How can you improve the conversion? How can you have better content? So I think that was, took a lot of pushing, but now I think we're improving performance, but I still so much performance improvement opportunity in the site. If you go to our home site, the loading time drive me crazy. It needs to be much faster, same thing. But in terms of features and things like that, we had a great engineering team. Half of the company is actually product and engineering. So we're doing fine there. The other thing took long time is building this brand and it's an ongoing work, you know, that personally, to be completely honest with you, I'm not the best guy to build a brand. So that is a big learning experience for me. How can you build a Varshop brand? And then how can you build a Varshop group brand? Because one is a shopper-facing brand and another is a merchant-facing brand. There's a little complexity that we have to work, continue to work. Have there been any tensions between building for the merchants, the brands, and for the actual shoppers, the end shoppers? And if so, what did that look like? There are. You know, I think a lot of the product engineering find a lot of times you want to focus on conversion and seeking product that has the highest conversion by default. If you're selling toothbrush, probably going to have a highest conversion, right? So there is always this tension there, but you want to build a platform that brand feels that they want to be, right? I think we manage that tension relatively well because I think the message is every decision we make, our mission is to help those independent brand creators more successful. And they will be more successful if we get a lot more shoppers. But we've got to make sure that we bring right kind of shoppers, right? The shoppers who cares about buying from this different brand with a unique point of view. And I'm sure also to some extent, it's a matter of focusing on short-term versus long-term, right? Because if you take care of the brands, that creates a better experience for the shoppers long-term. Sure. Whereas there are probably minor tweaks and optimizations you could do that slow-hanging fruit where you're sacrificing long-term brand equity for short-term conversions, but that's going to hurt everyone in the long run. When it comes to the way you guys acquire traffic and drive brand awareness, is that typically through your own efforts to promote Veroshop as a brand, or are you getting the majority of your traffic, let's say, from your brands promoting themselves, but leading people back to their brand profiles? 80-90% of the hard work is done by us. Virtually all of our brands has their own website. There is a biasness for brands to drive traffic on their own site. I would argue that our conversion is higher. I would also argue that because people feel more comfortable buying from Varshop than unknown brand. And then the second thing I would say that if they build the brand profile audience, ultimately it will bring a lot of repeat traffic and things like that. I think people believe that having that customers buying from your own website, you have the customer data and that's going to help you. 
I'm not so convinced how much primarily the new Apple world, how much it helps you, but there is a biasness towards that. But we do 80% of the work, you know, still a lot of the traffic comes from our brand. 80% of the work is done by us. And what's helping you as far as uh, acquiring traffic? What are the main strategies or channels that you guys have focused on that have worked? That's very traditional. I don't have a real secret sauce. You know, we're getting a lot of traffic organically. You know, I think we did a lot of partnership that brings out of traffic. We get a lot of traffic from search and social. But, you know, because we're a marketplace, we want to make sure that we're growing profitably as opposed to non-profitable. What are some differences you've noticed between either getting brands on board across beauty, fashion, wellness, home, or the way users shop from those categories. So anything that you've noticed as far as, okay, we need to think about some of these categories differently. Our average users, I believe, buying 1.9 product, most cases, they're different brands. And I think roughly half of the users are also buying different categories. And shoppers who are buying multi-category are our best customers because they really care about it. So I think one of the things we're trying to see that how can we expose multi-category to our shoppers you know, so that they come and discover new different kinds of products. Like our home category is, if you're a millennial, I love that category. There's not much for me to buy in the fashion category, but on the home category, it's really great. It sounds like it's sort of your job to understand different shifts and trends in how people shop, how consumers shop in general, how they discover brands, what makes them buy, what their user behavior is like and how that's changing with the advent of different technologies and platforms. So what is your current take on major changes around how people shop and buy? You know, I think the interesting thing is that I fundamentally believe you cannot introduce a new experience at the cost of the experience they already love. And so I think in the United States, Amazon trained the post-shopping experience. They nailed it. You cannot have just the pre-purchase experience and completely exclude the post-purchase experience. Pre-purchase experience has to get built on the post-purchase experience that Amazon created. I think we created the post-purchase experience that's was similar to Amazon. You know, 97% on time, dealing with single return solution. You can buy five different products and return from same software, single customer support. You can call us 24-7. All the things that shoppers love, we built on it. Now, I think people want to know stories before they buy. It was so many different products. You want to understand what you're buying. So we are introducing content and we're seeing great success. Actually, we found, again, these numbers could be a little off because I'm trying to remember as you go, but the product that has social content has 70% higher conversion rate. Wow. We're seeing that the shoppers actually value content, but if you just give them content and the post-purchase experience, it doesn't work. Because again, ultimately money is a funny thing, right? Is the way the investors, when they give you money, they give you trust. When shoppers, when they give you money, they give you trust. And they want their product delivered on time. Nothing makes them more furious when they buy something, it doesn't show up on time, or it's not exactly the same product, or the product is broken, or this different product. So that post-purchase experience is super, super, super important. That's fascinating. As we wrap up, I want to ask you one more question. What is the most fulfilling part of your work? So I think that long-term, I'll be fulfilled the most if the mission of the company be successful, that we are supporting 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 independent brand creators to be incredibly successful on Barrett to build their business and livelihood. I don't get exposure to that every day, 24-7. So on a, on a real-time basis, what's probably the most fulfilling is when the team is excited, they feel like that we're making positive progress. It's incremental. You know, Rome was not built on a day. Every day you have to make positive changes. So that's probably the most fulfilling, the little wins that will get to the ultimately victory down the road. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And where can people find Shop and where can they find you? Me, I am on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, and Barishop, obviously, 
go to the website, please download the app. You'll find us on social media. I hope everybody try it out. I don't think about it. I should have a, a shopping coach for all your, all your listeners. If that's still possible, we, we can create that. Yeah, send it. I'll include it in the show notes. Uh, and then, yeah, so that people can try it out. Amazing. Well, it was such a pleasure to learn more about what you're building. And also, I'm just very inspired by your story. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing more of yourself. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for making the time. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.